When the Torah describes the Jewish nation arriving at Har Sinai, it uses a very unusual expression. It was the third month of the Jewish people leaving Eretz Yisrael. By Yom Hazeh, this day, Bo Midbar Sinai, this day they came to the desert of Sinai. Now Rashi is bothered by the problem that the expression this day implies today, as if to say, today the Jewish nation arrived at Har Sinai. Rashi explains that that's exactly what the Torah is teaching us. Ma'o b'yamazeh, what does it mean this day? She'u divrei Torah chadoshim alecha, divrei Torah, words of Torah, should be new to you, ki lo hayom nosnu, as if they were given today. The Torah says the Jewish nation arrived in the third month this day to tell us that for eternity the Jewish people should view the Torah as new, as fresh. It should be as if I received the Torah today on Har Sinai. This Rashi is quite difficult to understand because, number one, Har Sinai was an incredible experience. The entire Jewish nation gathered together at the mountain and it suddenly turns dark. There are powerful, powerful thunders that come roaring through, a silence in the world, a cold shofar chazak, a powerful, powerful shofar blast that becomes stronger and stronger. But it was so powerful in the beginning that it was literally that exact point where human could hear and not go deaf. And then it got louder, lightning, the har itself, the mountain itself shaking, trembling, and smoke, it was literally one of the most awe-inspiring moments in creation. If I sit and learn, it's wonderful, it's powerful, it affects me, but I was not at Har Sinai. How could the Torah say to me, it should be as if I'm there? And more than that, we know that there's something special when something is new. The first time is the best time and there's only one first time. When the Jewish nation received the Torah, every word was fresh and every word was brand new. It was exciting, it was incredible. I learned Baba Metziah. It's wonderful, it's great, but I learned it already. <clears throat> I learned Baba Kama. Maybe I learned Mishnayis. Maybe I learned Halacha. It's wonderful, but it's not like it was just given today. How could the Torah expect something from me that doesn't seem to be possible this Rashi is quite difficult to understand. And I believe what this Rashi is sharing with us is not just a fundamental principle in learning Torah, but actually a fundamental principle in life, in growth. And to understand, in fact, what Rashi is sharing with us, we need to step back a little bit and understand the human being to a better extent. A tremendous amount of our avodas Hashem, of our service to Hashem, is working on ourselves developing our character traits, developing our midos, our sensitivities. But here's the problem. If you've never looked under the hood of a car and someone asks you to please help them, it's going to be very difficult. If someone says to you, my gonkalator is, is, is broken, can you help me? But you've never repaired a car. You don't know whether a car has a gonkalator or a carburetor or spark plugs or doesn't use them anymore. How in the world are you going to repair a car when you don't know the workings of the engine? And I believe in that sense, the human being is challenged with a tremendous, tremendous difficulty. If I am to work on myself, if I am to grow, 
then I have to fundamentally understand myself. I have to fundamentally understand the workings of the human, the different elements of my personality, the different things that move me, that drive me. And I have to become learned both in the academics and in the practical applications of how to change the essence of me. And to do that, we need to better understand exactly this. How did Hashem make the human being? How do we function? And to do that, let's begin by focusing on a pivotal Yisodos Dika Eben The Torah says, Do not cover the house of your friend. Do not cover the wife of your friend. Do not covet that which belongs to your neighbor. And this is Losachmod, this is one of the Aseris Adibros, a full Losase in the Torah. The Eben Ezra famously asks a question on this Losase. He says, Many people wonder, how is it possible? If you tell me not to steal that which I desire, okay. The Torah tells me not to do it. I want it, I wish to. But the Torah commands me not to do it, so I resist. But that's not what the Torah is telling me. The Torah is not telling me, don't take your neighbor's wife. The Torah is not telling me, don't steal your neighbor's eved. The Torah is telling me, don't covet, don't desire, don't <clears throat> wish to have her. Many people wonder, says Ezra, how is that possible? Imagine that she's very attractive. Imagine that my friend has a beautiful home. It's gorgeous a palatial manner. You could tell me not to steal, maybe not to plot, but how could you tell me not to desire? Explains the Ezra that the Torah is teaching us a principle. He says, imagine you have a villager, a very simple peasant, and one time in his life there's a parade and the princess herself is brought to town in the middle of this huge, huge entourage of people, a huge parade marching down the street. If the villager looks at the princess, he's not going to actually make plans to meet the princess, take her out on a date, maybe marry her. She's so many leagues above. She's so way, way out of his realm that he won't even think about her in those terms. She's untouchable. Explains Evan Ezra that that's what the Torah is asking us to do. He says a man can have a beautiful mother. His mother might be far more attractive than any other woman there. But he doesn't desire his mother. Why? Because since he was born, he's known his mother is his mother. There are objects I desire. My mother is my mother. Just like this simple villager wouldn't desire the princess because she's leagues and leagues above him. She's so beyond him. Just like a man wouldn't desire his mother. So too, says Yavanezer, if a person understands that Hashem runs the world, if a person understands that Hashem gives exactly that which I'm supposed to have, exactly in the right time to each person, then he'll recognize that it's impossible for me to change that which Hashem decreed. If Hashem decreed that that woman is to that man, she's untouchable. I can't change God's plans. As a villager doesn't covet that which he can't touch, because he knows it's way, way out of his league, so too if a man understands that Hashem runs the world, he won't covet his neighbor's house. Hashem gave that to him. I can't change that. That's proper for him. It's not proper for me, but it's way out of my realm of possibilities because Hashem runs the world. Explains the Evan Ezra, 
And then if I really understood that Hashem actually runs the world, I wouldn't covet and explains that's what the Torah is demanding of us. And this is a pivotal Nebuchadnezzar and a wonderful concept, but very, very difficult to understand. Because at the end of the day, and one of the strongest desires in man is taiva, desire. Whether it be lust, whether it be desire for money, those are powerful forces, very, very powerful urges in the human. Now, bitochen is a nice idea, and we should work on it. And halavai, we get to a level where we, on some level, see Hashem actively running the world. But how are you going to pit a weak thing like bitochen, trusting Hashem, against a powerful thing like taiva, desire? The two are not in the same league. And what the Ebenezer seems to be saying to us is very, very difficult to understand because I'm asking, Torah is asking me to take this weak little thing called bitachan and, and it's going to stop my desire. It sounds very difficult to understand. And to understand this Ebenezer, let's do a little bit of the studying of the human. Let's begin with some of the basics and let's see if we could better understand the Ebenezer, understand the system, and ultimately tie back to this Rashi and see if we could understand a little bit better what the Torah expects of a human. And to begin that, let's start with one of the very most bedrock basics. The Chavazov explains that when Hashem created us, Hashem created us out of two diverse elements. There's a part of me, a neshama, that comes from under the Kisya covered, that's pure, that's holy. There's another part of me, a nefesh abahami, that's filled with all of the desires that you'll find in any animal, any animal kingdom. I, the one who thinks, I, the one who goes through my day, am comprised of two competing elements. A seichel that's pure, that's holy. That's a part of me that only wants to do what's good, what's right, what's proper. And there's another full half of me, desires, all of the desires that you'll find in the animal kingdom. If you look at any animal in the wild, Hashem pre-programmed it with all of the appetites, instincts, and desire to keep itself alive, as well as the species in totality, into the human Hashem put those same desires. I am both of these, and both parts of these are competing for primacy, fighting one against the other, and one or the other is always becoming stronger. And this is one of those great realities. When you begin to work on yourself, the first step you have to recognize is there are two parts to me. One day I get up and really, really want to help other people. And the next minute I couldn't care less. One minute I'm dominating Shemarnesri, speaking to the creator of the heavens and earth right here. And the next moment I'm spaced out, I'm gone. I don't wake up until I take three steps back and where am I? The human being, you and I, are made up of two competing elements. And there are times when I'm one, times when I'm the other, but it's always fighting, always debating who's in control. And one of the most powerful forces in the human is taiva, is desire. What a person is supposed to be doing in life is listening to that neshama, harnessing, using the nefesh Bahami, the animal soul, and becoming ever greater. You see, one or the other becomes prominent. The two parts, the neshama and the nefesh Bahami, are fighting. The more I listen to my neshama, the stronger it becomes. The more I listen to the nefesh Bahami, the stronger it becomes. 
one or the other is always going to be going up or down. The human is ever in flux. Much like a muscle, the more you use it, the stronger it becomes. And with disuse, it atrophies. If a person listens to his neshama, it becomes stronger and stronger. Nevesha Bahami becomes weaker and weaker until eventually he gets to a point where he controls the animal soul within him and he uses it. He harnesses it. Much like a man rides a horse and he commands the horse which way to go. The man can never ride it, run at 35 miles an hour, but he's on top of a powerful horse. If a human being reaches total control, he uses his passions, he uses his desires, but he harnesses them and he accomplishes far more, but he's in control. However, this is one of the great difficulties of life. Getting control over the behemoth is not a quick process. It's not a decision. It's not one day I wake up, okay, I'm in charge here. I'm not listening to that animal soul anymore. I'm going to make every logical decision. Every decision going to be made with my neshama. And it doesn't quite work that way. Because one time I listen to my neshama. One time I listen to Nevesha Bahami. I'm this, I'm that. One day I'm into it. One day I'm not into it. One day I'm happy. One day I'm not. And I'm ever, ever in this battle. And for a person to really, really gain control over his nefesh Bahami, over his animal soul, takes years and years and years. And even assuming that he learns Musr, and even assuming that he's involved deeply and understands what he's doing, it's a very, very difficult process. But the Ebenezer's teaching us what I would call a trick. It's a technique to sort of short-circuit, to make things way, way easier. And I'll explain to you what the technique is. You ever notice that when the Shantran introduces a young woman who's slightly overweight, the Shantran will use every euphemism in the world. She's, well, she's, uh, she's a wonderful girl, a sweet girl. She's, maybe uh, The Shantran will say everything but dare not mention the fact that the girl is slightly overweight. Why is that? Because in our society, to many people anyway, being a little overweight is considered not attractive. And I guess many guys wouldn't go out with a young woman who is somewhat overweight. Now that's quite interesting, because if you went back in history 200 years ago, you'd find a very, very different reality. As a matter of fact, if you went back three, 400 years ago, there was a concept of a balbusser. If a man walked into shul and he was corpulent, he was huge, people stood back with respect, a balbusser. Ooh. And you know why? Because in those days, the only people who had enough money to be able to eat more than what they actually needed to just stay alive had to be a rich guy. And in many societies, being fat, being huge, was considered a symbol of honor. In Greek culture, the fatter the woman, the more attractive she was. There are certain African tribes where even to this day, apparently, they still fatten the women up to an unbelievable extent. In one of these tribes, supposedly the chief has a wife who he would fatten and fatten till she literally couldn't walk. Because interestingly enough, in many societies, being heavy was considered a sign of beauty and attractiveness. But in our day and age, it isn't. Now, isn't that interesting? You see, if you were living three, 400 years ago, and a woman was overweight, you might be extremely attracted to her, 
And today, it might well be the opposite. But let me show you another interesting reality. It used to be, and in certain societies still is, a woman who was white-skinned was considered very attractive. Only workers had to be in the field and would get baked by the sun, but the prim and the proper, the aristocrats, would stay inside on the porch, and a sign of an elegant woman was white, lily-white, rose-cheeked, but very white skin. Now today, that's not the reality. Being tanned is considered a sign of beauty. But I'll show you another interesting difference. I remember once having a discussion with Rabbi Harris, Shiva of now of Kugan Hills, and the subject came up about a black woman being attractive. And Rabbi Harris, Messiah Lefitumo said, what? You can be attracted to a black woman? And I found it very curious. And I'd like to explain to you what was going on. You see, he was brought up in a little bit of a different generation. The only women he came in contact with of color was the cleaning woman. And Aunt Jemima wasn't sort of the woman he'd be attracted to. But in our reality, our day and age, it's very different. You see, what a person is attracted to, what a person finds attractive is largely based on his culture, on his upbringing, on what he's learned to desire. And I'll give you a classic example of this. I want you to imagine a young man who was born and brought up in China. And since the time he's a little boy, every woman there had stick, straight, black hair, slanty eyes, and very slight of built. And he grew up in that society. And he turns 18, 20, whatever the age is, and it's time for him to go out. And you introduce him to a regular Caucasian woman. What? She's so big and blonde hair. Uh, uh, it's, it's strange. Likely, he wouldn't be attracted to her. And I believe what this underscores is a very interesting concept. You see, desire is innate in the human. But what you desire can be changed, can be cultured. And in fact, if you're brought up in one society where people desire a particular, whatever it may be, you may well learn to desire that. And if you're brought up in a different society, you would learn to desire that other thing. You see, desire is very difficult to change. But the object of your desire is a lot more readily flexible and can be changed. Lorenz was a psychologist who did some interesting behavioral studies. He found that when chicks were born, there was what he called an imprinting stage. And when the eggs would hatch, the mother would be right around the chicklings. And from the moment that the chicklings began to walk, the chicklings became attached to the mother. And there was a certain imprinting stage as long as the mother was there during the first few days of the baby's life, the chicks would attach themselves to the mother. And from that day on, wherever the mother would walk, the chicks would follow. And in fact, there are various psychologists, so you'd see pictures of them on college campuses. They'd be walking around. But the interesting point was that there'd be ducklings following them. You see, what Lorenz discovered was that the desire to imprint is inborn into the chickling. But what it imprints onto 
is dependent on what's there. And what he did as an experiment was, right after the chicks hatched, he shooed the mother away, and he stayed there. He made it a point to stay around the chicklings during their first few days of life, and amazingly, they imprinted on him. They became attracted to him. Wherever he walked, they would follow. You see, the desire to imprint is born into the Nefesh Bahami, into the animal soul. But what it imprints to is based on what's around. Normally, its mother is in closest proximity, so normally the system works. But if you fool the system, you take the mother away and put something else, whether it be a cat, whether it be a scientist, whether it be whatever, the chicklings will imprint on that. They'll become attached to that, and they'll follow it around. And you could see the picture of the scientists walking around college campuses, rows of ducklings following. And I believe that desire within the human works very much the same way. You see, to actually change desire takes years and years and years. It's what we're challenged with, but it's a lifetime fight. But what you desire can be much more readily changed. And I believe that's what the Ebenezer is teaching us, that a human being can control his thinking you see, desire comes from my nefesh Bahami. It's deep within me, within the human, and it's very hard to control. But what I think about, what comes into my mind's eye, is much more readily controllable. And explains to Ezra, I can understand, I can create visions, images in my mind to recognize the house that is belonging to Ruvain is so far removed from me. I can't touch it. I can't go near it. I'm like that villager who's looking at the princess. It's impossible. And if I conjure up that image, if I think about it enough, it becomes something that I no longer desire. Not because I don't desire beautiful things, not because I don't desire wealth, but that no longer is an object of my desire. Taiva, desire, is very difficult to stop. But what I desire can be much more readily changed. And what the Ebenezer is teaching us is a fundamental principle. And while that's not really the subject of our discussion in this series, it is a very, very major concept. If you'd like to see the ultimate level of this, the Sefer Achinuch explains why is it that the Torah commands a man and a woman to spend as much time together during their first year of marriage as possible. Shona Rishona. Shona Rishona a man is supposed to spend as much time with his wife as he possibly can. Explains the Sefer Achinuch, there's a particular reason for this. Because he's supposed to be training himself that this is a woman and nothing else is. This is how a woman walks. This is how a woman holds a spoon. This is how a woman talks. He's supposed to imprint on his wife to the extent that this is a woman and anything else, whatever, it's not a woman, this is a woman. And what the Sefer Achinuch is saying is that a human being can shape his reality. I can't so readily change desire, but I can much more readily change that which I desire. It could be in our world today it's far more difficult because we have so much more exposure and there's so much more than a man sees. But in a proper running world, a man gets married at a young age, spends full year together with his wife, and he imprints that this is the image of a woman, and he doesn't desire other women. You know why not? You see, when I go to the zoo, I don't go to the cage of the orangutan and say, wow, what a beautiful ape. <laughs> it's 
It's not something I desire. What the Tinoch is teaching us is that a human being can train his mind to see his wife as an object of desire, and this is a woman and nothing else is. Because again, desire isn't so easy to change, but what I desire is far more flexible, and Sefer Chinuch is teaching us a major concept. And I believe what this Rashi is sharing with us is an extension of that concept to a much greater extent. You see, what we fail to recognize is how much I can control my thinking, how much my mind controls the way I view things, the way I understand things, what I wish for, and what I desire. And I believe what this Rashi is sharing with us is a concept that's so life-altering that it is one of the major principles of being an Ever Hashem. And let me explain to you what I mean. If you've ever read a novel and you found yourself sort of carried away, maybe you were a pirate on the seven seas and you were right there, the swashbuckling, the sword play, and you really felt like you were there. Now that's a strange sort of reality because you know that you don't live in the 16th century. You know you're not a pirate. You know you have both eyes and not one. But when you were reading that novel, you were in that story, but not just in the story, you were living it. People in theater know that one of the most difficult jobs is the casting director. The casting director is the one who's responsible to find the right actor for the right part. But it's not just to find an actor who can sort of convey that role, who can play the role of the pirate or the athlete or the businessman. No, that would be difficult enough. The job of the casting director is to find the actor who is the most believable in that role. You see, the success of theater is when I identify with that actor so that when he is making that big trade, it's not he that's making that trade, but it's me. When he's falling off that cliff and he's in grave danger, it's not he, but it's I. And if you've ever found yourself in a situation where you're reading or you're watching something and you're carried away, your pulse is racing, you're nervous, you're afraid, what's going on? You know it's not happening. It's not real. It's a made-up story. Yet you're there and your pulse is, your heart's racing away, your fingers may be clammy. What's going on? Going on is that Hashem gave us a koach called imagination And imagination is a powerful tool. I can envision and see myself there. And when I get carried away in the story, I'm there. The casting director chooses the most believable actor, the one who people identify with, so that it's she, it's he, it's us together with them, and it's not them on the screen, on the stage that it's happening to, it's me. And this is a very interesting example of my mind's eye changing my reality. You see, if I'm watching something that's frightening, I'm experiencing it and there are physiological reactions within me. Now, isn't that strange? It's almost like I'm living it. It's almost like I'm experiencing it. And on a certain level, that's exactly what's happening. People who are successful in many endeavors use something called visualizations. Visualizations is a technique of visualizing that reality that I so wish to be. 
So for instance, if I'm an athlete and I want to win the big game, I visualize that scene. I'm holding the ball, I pull back and I throw and it's a perfect pass, a perfect spiral. But not only do athletes use visualizations, people in many different walks of life use them and they're very, very powerful. And do you know why? Because when I conjure up an image in my mind's eye, it feels real. And on some level, I'm experiencing that. What Rashi is sharing with us is how profound this concept is. A Jew is quite capable of visualizing Har Sinai, being there, experiencing it. Oh my goodness, the har, the mountain is shaking, the thunder, the lightning. Oh my goodness. And if you're not sure that I'm right, Chayev Adam Liros Every year in the Seder we say the, those words. A man is obligated to see himself as if he left Mitzrayim. What do you mean? He left Mitzrayim. I was not born in Egypt. I was not a slave. But a human being is capable of visualizing that, conjuring up that image in his mind's eye, and it can have a physiological reaction. He could live it. He could experience it. And what Rashi is sharing with us is that when a Jew thinks about these concepts, sees Harsinai, and there's a freshness, there's a newness, I just got the Torah today. Oh my goodness, let's go. It's exciting. It's wonderful. Let's go. And what Rashi is sharing with us is that our thinking controls our feelings, controls our essence to an extent far greater than we ever could imagine. You see, the reality is it's very, very difficult to change desire. But it's very easy to change the object of desire. And it's very, very difficult for a person to say, I'm not going to be interested in covet anymore or honor. That's very difficult. But a person can change his reality by changing his perspective. A person is quite capable of recognizing that one day my body will be in the ground. I will separate. And for eternity, I will be exactly what I shape myself into. Now let's imagine for a minute that in this current state, I'm a big ball covered. I need covered. I need honor. Okay, I try to work on it. I try to control it. But I recognize it's going to take years and years, 20 years, 30 years. I'm working on it, but, but I'm not there yet. What do I do? So one of the techniques that this Rashi is sharing with us is very simple. Just understand that there's going to come a time, your body's in the ground, I will be there in front of Beisden Shomala, and exactly who I am what I made myself into. If I'm in the front row or the back row, if I'm treated with great accord or with dishonor, it's based on one thing, what I made myself into, what I shaped myself into. But you see, it's very hard to get rid of a desire for honor. But I can change my reality, change my currency, and suddenly I'm using that drive for honor for great things to grow, to accomplish, to do what's right and what's proper. And what this Rashi is sharing with us is a fundamental yesod for growth in almost every area in life. Our visualizations, our mental images, our perceptions shape our feelings, shape our thoughts, shape the way we feel about things to an extent far greater than we think about. And I believe that this is a major yesod for the series because this series is dealing with the issue of appreciation. And the issue of appreciation requires a different visualization, a different perspective, 
a different understanding of many, many things. And I think when we recognize how much I can shape my reality, how much I could shape the way I think about things, but not just the way I think about things, but thereby the way I feel about things, we realize how much I can control myself and how much easier it is for me to actually become the kind of human being I want to be. We're given a tremendous challenge in this thing called life. We're challenged with changing the essence of me, growing, perfecting myself in so many different areas. And if you don't fundamentally understand the workings of the human, forget it. If you're going to try to change your type, I'm getting rid of desire altogether. My desire for money or honor or pleasure or whatever it may be, I'm getting rid of it. You will likely find yourself in a very, very difficult situation because it's years and years and years of work. Eventually you get there, but it's a long, long way down the road. Rashi sharing with us one of the great fundamental concepts is change your mental image. Use visualizations and suddenly you change everything. And I think what this Evan Ezra is sharing with us is exactly that concept. Evan Ezra says, don't desire another man's wife. How can you not desire? Very simply, in my mind's eye, she becomes untouchable. It's impossible, way, way leagues away. It's so far removed, it's like that villager looking at the princess. It's, it's out of the realm of possible. Explains Evan Ezra, would a person ever think, maybe I'm going to sprout wings and fly? As I don't think about the fact that I'm going to sprout wings and fly, I don't think about impossible things. It's impossible for me to take someone else's house. Hashem gave it to him, not to me. It's his, not mine. I can't touch it. I can't go near it. Not his car, nor his slave, nor his animals. Anything that Hashem gave to him is untouchable. But the great concept is that it's within my cognitive reality. I'm changing my cognitive reality. I can't get rid of desire so simply. A beautiful house is something that's beautiful. How do I not desire it? Because I recognize that, listen, uh, the White House is not mine. And I don't really plan on buying the White House because it's <laughs> belongs to the president of the United States of America. And I'm not really going to covet it to plan how to get it because it's so out of the realm of possible. Explains Evan Ezra, that's what I could apply to every situation. By recognizing the fact that Hashem runs the world, <clears throat> what I'm going to do is change my mental image and once I change my mental image, then as a result, everything follows suit. I believe desire, in its most pure sense, if you look at a young man brought up in China and he is only attracted to those type of women, that's because he was cultured towards that. He was imprinted towards that. Can he change? He certainly can. And if he marries a woman of a different sort of look, what he's supposed to do is train his mind's eye that this is a woman and nothing else is. He has an image of his wife in his mind's eye. He imprints it and thinks about it and works on it and works on it, avoids looking at billboards, avoids looking at other women. He only thinks about his wife, and eventually the object of desire becomes his wife. And this is not a discussion about working on desire per se. This applies to everything in life. If I'm jealous of my friend's honor, position, power, his ability to learn, whatever it may be, the technique to use is to change my mental image. Once I change my mental image, then automatically I win the game. I can't so readily stop desire, but the object of my desire is much more readily changed. And I want to close this session with one last observation. I was once in Or Sameach for Shabbos, and there was a, and Rabbi Kelmer was there, 
And there was a, it was the end of the, uh, right after Shabbos, he invited me to join a group. And the group was focused on a certain concept that he wanted to teach. And the concept was something that I wasn't really focused on, I wasn't thinking about. He invited me to join the group. I sat down and I joined the group. And at a certain point, he said to the people in the group, I want you to say these words exactly as I say them. I want you to say the words, awesome joy. So some people mumbled awesome joy. I said, no, 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 no. I want you to say awesome joy. Some people said awesome joy. Okay. No, no, no. Say awesome, awesome joy. Then he said a few more words. He said, I want you to say awesome joy, awesome joy. And he went on, made us say other things and other things. And eventually it became something, became almost like a chorus. And we said, awesome joy, awesome joy. By the time we were done this half-hour session, we must have said the words, awesome joy, at least 30 times. When I walked out of that room, I was floating. I was floating. And what Pliskin taught us in that lesson was something very, very profound. You see, saying the words, awesome joy, sounds innocuous. It doesn't sound very effective at all. But when you recognize that when I say those words... To some level, I'm saying something, it changes my reality. The Sefer HaChinuch says over and over, why do we have so many mitzvahs? So many mitzvahs reminding us because the outside actions that we do affect us. He explains there are 19 mitzvahs surrounding Yisiyas Mitzrayim. Why do we need 19 mitzvahs? He explains because by doing it over and over in this way and that way, by tzitzit and mezuzah and Pesach and matzah, we're acting it out, and we're changing our cognition. Those are techniques to change our mental state, to be able to visualize leaving Mitzrayim. What Rashi's teaching us here is that the mental images that you bring into your mind become reality. They change the way you feel. That's what an imagination is. That's when you're reading a story and you're pulled into it. That's why you react and what Rashi is teaching us is that this is one of the fundamentals that are most effective in changing your reality. And I believe as we go through these series, this particular point, that I can change my thoughts, and my thoughts change the way I think, which change the way I feel, is a fundamental. It made it to a car magnet. That's a schmooze magnet. Because the way I think becomes the way I feel, becomes who I am forever, and that is one of the great concepts in Musar. I can't control desire so easily, but I can control my thoughts. And the way I think becomes the way I feel. The way I feel becomes me. It changes who I am. And who I am is what I made myself into forever. Join us, please, for the rest of the series. I hope we'll bring this more to fruition and explain how it applies to many different parts of life.